Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily, newly designed China Access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our website at subchina.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region, to China's ambitious plans to shift its economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Andrew Liu, Assistant Professor of History at Villanova University in Philadelphia. Andy is the author of Tea War, A History of Capitalism in India and China, and publishes some excellent essays in N Plus One, a thrice-yearly magazine that focuses on literature, culture, and politics. And it's uh, because of one of those essays in N Plus One, an essay titled Lab Leak Theory and the Asiatic Form, that I've asked Andy to join me today. It's an arresting piece and one that, for me at least, caused the scales to kind of fall away from my eyes, as it were. It made uh, the pieces suddenly fit. So, Andy, welcome to Seneca. Yeah, thanks a lot for inviting me. I look forward to it. So, so to you listeners, this is the sort of conversation that I think is going to benefit from you having actually read the essay. It's not very long, and since you've already entered listening mode, perhaps instead of going to nplusonemag.com, that's the letter N plus onemag.com and searching for the piece or clicking the link in your uh, show description, you can actually just hop over to the China Stories podcast and listen to Andy himself reading it there. Uh, So go ahead and hit pause and uh, we'll still be here when you get back. All right, we're back. Uh, So, Andy, at its heart, this piece is about why one representation, one stereotype about East Asia, and and maybe more specifically about China, came to be supplanted by another one. And um, I think you found an excellent illustration of this that's just been happening, you know, in real time, right right before our eyes. Uh, We've watched it happen uh, just in the last couple of years during this pandemic, the way that the dominant explanation of the origins of COVID-19 shifted from, you know, the zoonotic origin or really in its crass early form, the wet market theory 
uh, to the so-called lab leak theory. Now, to be sure, this shift hasn't happened among scientists, though the lab leak theory has made some inroads even among, you know, people who are scientifically trained, but it is certainly not dominant in the public mind. And I, I should add, this essay of yours, uh, just to caveat, it, it isn't about which of these theories is, is correct or true uh, or, or what you actually believe, but rather about why one came to dominate over the other one. So in a nutshell, what are these two modes of thinking about East Asia? Maybe to back up and explain the essay a little bit, I it's kind of a sequel to an essay I wrote last year about wet market, uh, the wet market mm-hmm. theory. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it at the very beginning of the pandemic when everyone was debating where did this come from, the idea of wet market was circulating. And a lot of people, not just me, were kind of pushing back on this. And my answer to this idea that COVID was a byproduct of like Chinese culture and tradition, which is kind of the argument I make in everything I write, is that what you call Chinese culture and tradition is actually this byproduct of like global forces and capitalism and so on. So I was kind of writing an update. Uh, this essay is kind of an update to that essay. It's mm-hmm. written in 2021. And at the time, I was realizing that the wet market debate had kind of been settled in the sense that it was kind of no longer okay to talk about it in polite society uh, by 2020. But what had kind of replaced it almost at an inverse relationship in 2021 was the lab leak theory, right? And Nicholas Wade former New York Times uh, journalist kind of put it back in public last spring. And that theory argues that it wasn't an accident from wild endangered species in the Huanan seafood market. It was um, a leak from a Chinese laboratory. And the argument in the essay is like, well, these are both forms. You could argue these are both forms of racism, right? They're both scapegoating China for this global pandemic. I think that's the general mainstream consensus that especially Asian American groups would say, like, these are just racist theories, Trump scapegoating. Asia and Asian Americans. But I think the question that raises though is like, well, these are very different theories. And if you're just going to say, you know, these are just racism, that doesn't explain why wet market became labeled a racist theory and was kind of forbidden from being talked about in 2020. But in 2021, as you said, like, you know, now there is some pushback, but for a lot of 2021, there was a lot of mainstream legitimacy granted to the lab leak theory. Uh, The, the, the litmus test I give is John Stewart talked about the lab leak theory on the Colbert <laughs> show. So that's like, oh, okay, like liberals are okay with this theory all of a sudden. Um, and the basic premises uh, of the essay is I was drawing on this distinction that I found. It's in a lot of the like literature on Asia and Asian American literature, but Colleen Lai at Berkeley kind of put it really pithily by saying, we're kind of familiar with this idea of Orientalism that mm-hmm. Edward Said made popular with post-colonial theory and studies. But to specifically talk about the U.S. relationship with East Asia and Chinese and Japanese workers all the way to the 21st century, there's a different kind of racial stereotype that she calls Asiaticism, like the Asiatic, which uh, I'm not exactly sure like the origins of the distinction between those categories, but Asiatic tends to be the term that emerged a lot when discussing, for instance, like Chinese labor in California or Japanese labor in the West Coast. So Asiatic kind of becomes a little bit, kind of takes on a slightly different connotation than Oriental or Asian. And the difference is, you know, we can dig into, you know, the, the Saidian version a little bit more if you want, but... Yeah, let's, think, let's do that. Let's do that. Yeah. Let's, let's actually talk about it because I think, I mean, most of us will have read Said in, in, in college or whatever, but uh, in a nutshell, what did he say and where was this Orient that he was talking about? Yeah, so Said writes in the 70s, this book that basically invents post-colonial theory, one of the most influential books in the last few decades, called Orientalism, about sort of Western ideas about the Orient. And if you look into it more specifically, he's really talking about like France and Britain dominating the Islamic world or South Asia, Middle East, uh, parts of North Africa, like Egypt. So, But the idea of Orientalism, this idea of like Western 
uh, a Western sort of condescending view towards the East. It's such a seductive and all-encompassing category that I think a lot of people latched onto it and and would cite Said or cite post-colonial theory to talk about basically like prejudiced, biased, racist views of all sorts of parts of the world, right? So naturally, I don't know if you had this experience taking classes on East Asian studies, right? I, when I was a student in the 2000s, admittedly, I was at Columbia where Said was teaching. I was assigned Orientalism like every class I took. East Asian studies, South Asian studies, Asian American literature. And the assumption was, you know, this is about Oriental people and we're going to talk about racial stereotypes and there's nothing better to read than Edward Said. And, you know, obviously I, I find there's a, lot, there's a lot valuable in Said, but I don't know if you had this experience, but when you read Said and then you're like, trying to think about China, right? Or trying to think about East Asia. You're a little bit like, but but Said doesn't say anything really about China or Japan. And he doesn't have to, right? He's really concerned about um, sort of racism against Muslim people in in the Middle East. So, you know, it's not his burden necessarily to explain the whole world. Right. But there is a bit of a mismatch between citing Orientalism and then just kind of assuming there's a smooth applicability to understanding the history of Asia or East Asia, let's say. I, I suppose it's obvious enough, but maybe we should talk specifically about how the whole discourse around wet markets uh, and, and that right. zoonotic origin, you know, the alleged eating of bats and that sort of thing. I mean, that was actually one thing that happened to a niece of mine in Berkeley, of all places. You know, she was standing on a street corner when somebody rode by her on a bicycle and, and shouted bat eater at her. Yeah. What, what was it about this that, that sort of fits into this Orientalist frame, this Saidian Orientalist frame? Yeah, so I think for Said, Orientalism is this premise that uh, the East is the opposite of the West. And if the West embodies values like individualism, um, ultimately like innovation, technological innovation, creativity, um, sort of, I don't know, like bold boldness of action. I don't know if that's the right description. The East represented the opposite, like a sort of slavish mentality to a collective uh, uh, sort of submission to an oriental despot right like an emperor in asia um and above all like instead of believing in science and technology and these things that have liberated the west right they were stuck in asians are stuck in tradition and superstition and so the wet market theory was premised on this idea that there are these animals that shouldn't be sold in shouldn't be brought into human society and should definitely not be sold in a sort of unsanitary um, unhygienic place like a wet market and the examples, and you know, this is all based on the, I think the actual research that went into like where did SARS come from? It came from, I think, civet cats, like wild animals yeah. that shouldn't have been sold in in Guangdong, or in, Hong, in Guangdong, then leading, leading to Hong Kong, right? And so the theory was, you know, these are animals that do not belong in human society, but because of Chinese, I don't know, maybe traditional medicine or traditional superstition, they eat animals like pangolins, which are on the endangered species list, and. So even though science and, you know, the civilized world knows you shouldn't eat this stuff, you should eat like industrial agriculture, I guess, instead, um, (laughs) Chinese people persist in eating things they shouldn't be eating. Um, And so that's kind of the, that was was sort of the Orientalist streak there. And again, everyone pointed this out, uh, you know, at the time. And that's why by middle of 2020, people stopped talking about it um, because they kind of knew it was politically incorrect, even if they believed it. But this Asia that we face today, this Asia, China specifically, of high-speed rail networks and quantum computing and AI supremacy, it obviously doesn't fit into this old Orientalist conception. So there's this other idea of East Asia, which is this Asiatic racial form. And as you said, it was put forward by Colleen Lai. 
Uh, that was in a book that she wrote in 2004. I have not actually read it uh, called mm-hmm. America's Asia, Racial Form and American Literature, 1893 to 1945. Can you briefly talk about what attributes people give to this form? What do they impute to the Asiatic? Yeah. So for Colleen, I think the pithy way she put it was um, Asians, so either immigrants or people in Asia, are characterized by or distinguished by ec- excessive economic efficiency. And so if, if you think about Orientalism, right, what it's really saying is Asia, all Asians, right, are excluded from the sort of march of progress, which is really about, in a lot of ways in the 18th, 19th century, right, economic industrial progress. So they're excluded from that. By contrast, the Asiatic, they're not just inside, you know, the economic market for progress. They're actually excessive. They're too obscenely, too efficient, <laughs> too economic, hyper-modern, hyper-economic and all that. So in a lot of ways, it's like the uh, sort of like inversion of the Orientalist stereotype. And if you think about it a little bit more, right, um, maybe you had the same experience you said to kind of connect the dots for you, connect the dots for me as well, because you you grow up in the U.S., for instance, hearing all sorts of stereotypes about Asian Americans. And you again, you want to dismiss it as Orientalist or racist, but stereotypes like the model minority, that all Asians are good at math and science and so on. And you can say that's racist um, and prejudicial, and it is, right? But it's a different type of stereotype than right. the stereotype of Said and Orientalism. Uh, in fact, it's kind of the opposite. And I think for me, there's a long decades, right, of cognitive dissonance um, that, that uh, again, I think not everyone, Colleen is not the only one to write about this, but when she put it that way in such stark terms, like for me as well, a light bulb went off in my head. I was like, this actually explains a lot. Um, and puts together a lot of pieces uh, of the puzzle for me. So her book covers this period that ends really with the Second World War, though. And this is sort of before uh, Japan and then China, or Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, and China all emerge as sort of, you know, countries of, of pretty prodigious technological prowess, right? Uh, right. So there is all this, you know, uh, this stuff in the, in her book, of course, about the model minority myth and about the peril, but uh, she doesn't, mm-hmm get into to our modern times but let me let me before we we look at sort of the, the more recent decades and and this new conception of asia i think that some of the things that she talks about are already present in earlier encounters with china by the west so in the in the description by witnesses to you know the mongol onslaught in the 13th century uh in this myth of, of prester john this sort of asiatic ruler who was a christian and was gonna you know fight the mongols um in the 14th century, I guess it was Marco Polo when his book got really popular, in um, much of the writing about China during the Enlightenment. So I wonder whether you think that these two ideas of Asia, the Oriental and the Asiatic forms, do they run in parallel in a kind of dualism with one one kind of ascendant for time and then the other, um, but always like both present? Or for you, are they sequential? Are they serial? I mean, does one give way to the other in our narrative yeah. in like a, as a dominant narrative. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. That's something I thought about as I was writing it because obviously for presentation purposes for a short piece, you just want to make the distinction clear. Um, and so I think there's a clear logical distinction, but obviously history and logic are not the same thing that historically it's a mixture. I, I think of the metaphor of a pendulum swinging back and forth or hmm. I don't know, parab- parabola. I don't know if that's how you get like, two dimensions in there. All you Asians are good at math. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just thought it's a parabola. Like. <laughs> I can't actually do the formula for it. Um, no, like there's a book called um, 
you probably know this book, Adam Smith in Beijing, right? By sure, Giovanni yeah. Origi. And he has a whole um, chapter about, uh, you know, Voltaire and Smith, like the same people you're talking about. They really admire China up until the middle of the 1800s by they like all Western Europeans, basically. I um, mean, yeah, you could probably trace that tradition to like, you know, chinoiserie and like Orientalist fascination in the middle of the last millennium by Western Europeans. And in a lot of ways, it does feel like, you know, sometimes time is a flat circle that we're kind of coming back to things that were well known or that were widely believed before the 19th, 20th century. And in a way, we can kind of provincialize in a lot of ways, you could perhaps provincialize Orientalism and say, well, that is a, that was a thing, right? That the sort of racism against Orientals was a thing. But it kind of, especially when it comes to China, it was very pronounced. You know, I think in my classes, I kind of think it really begins with, I don't know, like really reaches a peak with like the Sino-Japanese War and the Boxer Uprising and this idea that China's barbaric and they're beheading their own people and so on. Right. That imagery, you know, really lasts, I'd say, you know, from that, that kind of creates the ground, groundwork for Chinese studies and for a lot of negative stereotypes of China for much of the 20th century. But, um, you know, we're kind of entering, what, like the fourth, fifth decade of reform and opening at this point, where maybe for younger people, like, um, the they're less, it's less taken for granted that China's a backward country. And they actually, it's more taken for granted that China's this scary economic power that's going to overtake um, overtake the West. As yeah, yeah, but, for sure. Right, And it's a mixture of both, obviously. It's always a mixture of both. But the question is sort of, what is predominant? And I think... You know, you've written about this also, right, in, in your piece on um, kind of t- the technology war between the U.S. and China. But a lot of people have written that some sort of churning point seems to have taken place in the last two decades. I would, I would actually, you know, narrow it to I think like the the period between say 2015 and 2017. Right. That seems to have been for me a kind of turning point. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think one of the things that you observed most keenly was you talked about this kind of notionally positive reporting about how countries like South Korea and Japan and and Taiwan were handling the pandemic well, and how there was this subtext. Um, sometimes I think it's people even said it out loud about you know like a more communitarian or more collectivist society. And they would invoke you know the Confucian family state hierarchical ordering of society. A lot of people, uh, rightly I think, roll their eyes at a lot of this. But I, I think it needs to be said that there were also a lot of of people, including a lot of my Chinese friends, uh, who really did kind of buy into this. It was like Asian values was back, baby. You know, um, yeah, totally. Does does this argument um, does it fit neatly to you into the Asiatic form thing? I mean, because yeah, there was this Borg collective cog in the machine cast to it, but there's also this kind of almost well, kind of old school Said Orientalist invocation of this hoary, you know, yeah. Confucian tradition. Uh, that it, it, that seemed to me to be of the other uh, type. So they're yeah. both kind of present even in that. For sure. It's a mixture. Like um, I, I'd say for, you know, basically the people in the U.S. who would say we can't do it like they can because we can't possibly expect it to, you know, curb the freedoms of our people as opposed to Asians who have no freedom to begin with, right? Those, that, would, that would obviously be like an Orientalist, sort of old-fashioned Orientalist idea whereas i you know a lot of people including myself were, was quite admiring of the asiatic characteristics of each <laughs> thought wow they're really wearing masks and they're really um you know just and their government's really taking care of their people um and giving them the opportunity to opt out of working until it was safe and 
so I definitely, you know, I, you know, we make fun of these stereotypes. We're also, we trade in these stereotypes. I totally, totally, you know, accept or Asiatic stereotypes all the time. I, you know, I want to buy a Japanese car, not an American car and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I think there's definitely an Asiatic aspect to the sort of seemingly neutral reporting on how good Asia was. I think you, you put your finger on like the thing that I think connects these two modes, these two kind of uh, racial types, which is that unfreedom bit. I mean, right. you, you argue actually in your essay that the kind of the old, you know, sinophobia script doesn't really account for the change we've seen between them. But for me, I, I feel like it does pivot around this one thing about about unfree. I mean, like whether we're using the kind of uh, the the old Orientalist mode, you know, where there are all the thralls of the Oriental despot, or whether we go to the Asiatic mode where they're all like these soulless, you know, automatons. Um, right. Either way, what they don't seem to have is individual agency. What they don't have is right. is, is freedom. Uh, I feel like that. I mean, and and that was another thing that was just so present in the whole discussion. I'm mean, just as you you were saying right now. It's like. Both Americans, you know, who, who and people who were or really opposed to the, you know, it's, they always use the word draconian to the draconian, you know, lockdowns. <laughs> draconian, yeah. And my Chinese friends, they would invoke freedom. It's like you know, uh, It was like it was all kind of yeah. about freedom. It felt, felt like that was like right. the thing around which these two, uh, the, the intersection point between these two, these two things. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of it. I think that this is kind of a point of tension in the analysis of, for instance, like Colleen Lai's analysis, which is the Asiatic is on the side of like excessive hypercapitalism. Now, there's still a difference. So like her main example, her first example, and this is like the right. example of Asian American studies is always Ch Chinese exclusion. And in that case, well, we're dealing with Chinese workers. So how are they on the side of capital? Well, they've become kind of seen as a threat to white workers because they're slaves to white capitalists like Vanderbilt and Stanford would use Chinese coolies, right? And and so on. But on the other hand, I think another point she's making and another scholar, Ico Day, has made this point that another way that Asiatic stereotypes function is is, a, is, is in a way that's very um, comparable to anti-Semitic stereotypes, which is to say that hmm. Chinese business, Chinese, Chinese is itself capital, like business people... Um, or just Chinese capital is the sort of free-floating thing that is, um, which is why it's very compatible with conspiracy theories. This kind of free-floating thing that you don't quite see, but is borderless and fluid and mobile. And so sometimes I do agree. Asiaticism it really is about the sort of coolie in either California or in Guangdong making stuff for cheap. But sometimes it is also that there's these like mischievous, nefarious, you know, ne'er-do-well Chinese capitalists that are just like uh, the sort of conspiracy the, the Jewish quote unquote Jewish conspiracy that their problem is that they're too free, right? That they can't be checked, that they're invisible, but they actually pull all the levers between <laughs> interesting and, and whatever. No, I, I know. I mean, like I, I remember, yeah. you know, years ago, my dad would be like in Costco and a woman would come up to him and say, excuse me, sir, you look <laughs> like you know something about computers. And I mean, that was the kind of what, what, <laughs> what they call them now. Um, microaggressions. Yeah. It was kind of, you know what they would call oh, yeah. microaggression. <laughs> totally. But, Right, but yeah, right, I mean, right. and I would yeah, always, yeah. you know, debate my dad about that. I'd say, you know, look, I mean, this is this is that model minority myth thing. This is, you know, that that thing, and it's going to come back to bite mm -hmm. you. And uh, you know, he he was. So was your dad? Was your dad flattered when he? Yeah, was so he was. He was. He was like, you know, haha. Yeah, you know, I think that's very funny. And and uh, you know, I I <laughs> right. might find myself saying the same thing. I guess I I would like inherently trust a uh, like a a, right. a Chinese man with with glasses and. 
<laughs> anyway, uh, pretty funny, but I, I, I feel like, you know, we see the same things in, in uh, Chinese stereotypes about Jewish people where they, they cannot accept that they are in any way anti-Semitic when they say, no, 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 I, I mean that, you know, Jews are, are good at handling money and they're, they have, you know, they're, they're like <laughs> us. They're, it's a compliment, right? right. Yeah. Right. So, pretty funny. Yeah, it's a compliment. I mean, and there's also, uh, there's, there's like a lot of documentation of XYZ group around the world being called the Jews of X group, like like there's been an analogy that Chinese people are seen as the Jews of Southeast Asia and, and parts of Southeast Asia where they have historically kind of been in control of finance. Um, you know, there's groups in India that are known as like the, like the Parsis or the Gujaratis or the Jews sure, of India, sure, sure. right? So it's not like a, it's not just a culturally specific stereotype. It's actually a quite common one that has a lot to do with trying to make sense of these chaotic, un, impossible to understand dynamics of an, a global economy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Armenians in, in that part of the world are. I mean, but it's easy for me to just imagine any kind of like well-intentioned, you know, liberal who's just sure that the image of this technologically robust and kind of science-powered and industrious, hardworking, long-term thinking East Asian person is just an unalloyed compliment, as as you say, and, and it couldn't be construed as racist. So let, let's spell out, you know, what are the dangers? What is so wrong with this Asiatic form? It's not innocuous. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I mean, this gets into like a lot of the stuff that I think a lot of Asian American studies um, kind of has a lot of hand-wringing about, soul-searching about, about this model minority myth. I mean, the the main consequence, of course, is that it's, it's a bit dehumanizing um, and it leads to what I think is going on with the lab leak theory stuff, which is, you know, what I did was I kind of dug into literature on the lab leak and, you know, there's all these kind of like nice sounding, very technical descriptions of how the lab leak happened. And they kind of dig further into like, where are the sources coming from? Who are these people making these statements? And I think almost the majority of the people, not the majority, a good amount of people advancing the lab leak are basically national security people who are suspicious of China for their for what they uh, believe is a bioweapons program. And, you know, they might have a bioweapons program. I don't know. But a lot of this is basically based on a projection of a sort of a China that they can't trust, a China that's in competition with the United States, a China that actually is like has has plans to dominate and rule the world. Um, and so obviously if you dehumanize or if you um, reduce a group to sort of these sort of super abilities and, and, and counterpose them to, you know, like everyone else who's just like a normal person and is not like the, the sort of evil and dehumanizing aspects of capitalism, then it leads to a very a seductive theory that if we just got rid of this one group or if we, in this case, like ban this group or, you know, expel this group, then that would um, address a lot of the issues. I mean, the anti-Semitism analogy is, you know, a lot of what uh, I think this literature is coming from is from a piece of work by Moise Postone, who argued that like a lot of anti-Semitism in the 20th century was about kind of workers or middle class people trying to scapegoat Jewish people for all the kind of ills and the vicissitudes of the global economy that would make them rich and then make them poor. And it was like this horrible system. And um, in a lot of ways, it's uh, that so that that's what Nazism was about, and so I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to like jump to like the tenth ten thousand degree of like this is this all leads to Nazism, but it is sort of a scapegoat theory where people are trying to make sense of things like well like America is in its fourth decade of economic decline and COVID is this horrible thing that's you know doing lots of terrible things to lots of people and um, who do we blame for all this? And if you attribute to China or to Chinese people, right, the as the people who are kind of secretly behind behind the in closed doors, like secretly in, in, in control of 
what's wrong with the global economy or what's wrong or you know they unleash this thing called covid to the rest of the world you know it, it doesn't it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see how this could have really negative disastrous consequences yeah i mean we've seen this a lot with even you know voting machines and things like that there's a, a lot of the, the, the right-wing conspiracy stuff it doesn't stop at you know uh, hugo chavez it all goes all the way to beijing to me you, you almost couldn't have been better timed i mean if you wanted to scapegoat china i mean you know when when covid broke out in, in china you know china was already kind of becoming the villain we were already in the throes of this of this trade war of this nasty kind of cold war uh, in technology when you know the atrocities in xinjiang were coming to light uh when the repression in hong kong was sort of at its max right um all this stuff was very much in, in the news and so there's like a, a certain narrative expediency to, to casting COVID as, as a, a Chinese plot. And, you know, you're absolutely right. I think that, that there was like a deliberate effort to conflate lab leak theory with biological weapons theories. I mean, and this was, it was like purposefully smudged uh, by people like Pompeo and people like Matt Pottinger and, you know, working through uh, the people who they had on speed dial on their phones in, in, in the Washington press corps. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's really kind of horrifying. Um, how specific, though, are these ideas to China? Or are they applied more broadly to kind of a generic idea of East Asia? Because, I mean, for me, at least, I keep hearing echoes of Japan's rise yeah. 40 years ago in, in a lot of the same stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think about Japan a lot in terms of 70s, 80s Japan as a prototype. And obviously, China and Japan are very different. Um, and there's going to be specific versions of it with China, specific versions with Japan. But, you know, there's a very clear tipping point in the 70s and 80s where Japan is like this miracle junior partner of the United States. They make all these great goods for us. You know, they've they've um, absorbed all the lessons of how great American capitalism is. They didn't go communist, unlike China and North Korea. Right. And then, you know, starting in this time of economic depression, in the 70s into the 80s is when Japan is now seen, this, as, seen as an enemy. Uh, very famously, you know, the murder of Vincent Chin, which was like a mistaken identity attempt mm-hmm. to scapegoat Japanese workers for the decline of the Detroit auto industry. Uh, and then I think I think to the most poetic or the most vulgar way to connect the two is to think about, there's this famous appearance by Donald Trump on the Oprah Winfrey show in 1988, where he talks about, she asked him, are you going to run for president? Donald Trump says, no, I'm not going to run for president, but I have a lot of issues with the Japanese and the way that they're ripping us off and we need to protect ourselves from the Japanese and so on. And, you know, if you just kind of replace the word Japan with China, you know, that's basically every species given since 2015, yeah, yeah. you know, and, you know, there's other analogies there. Like in there's a, there's a famous freak out when Japanese um, business people bought Rockefeller Plaza in the 80s. And there was a similar freak out when I forget the name. I wrote about this in a different piece, how like Chinese Chinese um, hotel group wanted to buy a hotel group in, in the U.S. and Cepheus, yeah, yeah, yeah. like prevented them from buying it on the same kind of fear that they were going to take over all property in the U.S. and so on. So obviously, you know, Japan is like what a fraction of the size of China and they're totally different countries and so on. But I think uh, just to kind of peel back a little bit, right, the, the point of the Asiatic racial form is that it is kind of transposable. And so, for instance, with a lot of Asian values discussion, both Asian values, but Asian demonization. That could be applied to China, could be applied to Japan, it could be applied to Korea, it could be applied to Singapore, depending on just like however, wherever it's kind of um, expedient to use the stereotype. But certainly I think, you know, Japan, first Japan, then China is the kind of clear pattern, um, both both in, in the last few decades, but I think for Colleen Lai also, if you think about the 19th century, there's first Chinese labor that was excluded and then it was Japanese uh, labor in the, you know, into World War II. 
that gets scapegoated as the sort of infringement upon white labor and white 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 freedom in the West Coast. Yeah, exactly. Andy, I mean, I'm glad that you kind of fessed up and said that you kind of invoke Asiatic stereotypes <laughs> yourself sometimes. Because I, I, I always wonder about, I mean, after reading your essay, I was thinking about talks that I've given or even, you know, things that I've written before about uh, technology and tech development in, in China. And I've always talked about how, you know, it, it takes place in a very different kind of social and cultural matrix. It's it's produced and it's consumed in a, a different way. There, There's like a, a posture toward futurity, a posture toward technology that's quite different. I mean, the laugh line I always use is, you know, that, you know, we in the West are in our black mirror phase where China's still in its Star Trek phase, right? Uh, but I mean, I, I, I try to be careful not to ascribe these differences to some kind of, you know, inherent quality or, or culture or whatever, but, you know, right. instead to just like the more concrete historical experience of, for example, having, you know, seen your your material life improve pretty much in lockstep with the power and quality of the device you have in your hand, right? I mean, and, and you know, there's also power structures and, and, and institutions that create incentives. So, you know, like China is a really deeply technocratic place. It's like the way you climb the ladder is you, you're really good at math and, and, and engineering. Yeah, and, right. Uh, but I, I would still, I would still, I mean, even after reading your essay, I'd still feel pretty confident in, in saying that there are different, you know, sets of societal attitudes toward technology, toward the future, toward science. Um, yeah. How, how do you, I mean, am I, do I need to hang that up now? Do I need to think, oh, no, no, I'm invoking <laughs> No. Okay, good. No, <laughs> sorry, yeah, no. I, I, when you were saying earlier about, like, what's wrong with the Asiatic form, uh, obviously there are dangers with it, but I also, my approach to it, and this might be just be like the ivory tower approach, is not necessarily to moralize about how bad racism is like we kind of know racism is bad but more just think about trying to explain where it comes from and how r racial form is kind of symptomatic of something it's kind of like an iceberg where you only see the tip um, sure. and the point is not to say well the, that tip doesn't exist that's bad it's more like well where does that tip come from what is that big complex stuff that's under the surface and so for me what i think is interesting in addition to like saying racism is bad is also to say well why are these racial forms or stereotypes, why are they so plausible? Like, you know, as I mentioned, like lab leak theory, the last poll I saw, and this is the last poll that was taken, was December, and 70x percent of the country, of the US, believes in lab leak. Majority of Western Europe believes in lab leak theory. Wow. And, and, you know, as you said at the very beginning, like, I don't know what happened. I kind of think it's natural. I, mean, I, I strongly believe it's natural transfer, but I'm obviously not a scientist. And what's so interesting is like, there isn't any smoking gun either side, on either side. But the opinions have changed so rapidly. So that's, so if there's no there there, if there's no smoking gun there, what is there? What is there is, I think, um, a certain, uh, what's the word, like plausibility or resonance between what the stereotype purports to explain and also what people are kind of are feeling in their everyday life as, as like the history they've experienced in their life. Like in the last 30 years, 20 years, if you don't, if you're not from China, you have this distinct impression of that place is backwards and traditional to, wow, that place really like makes everything that I buy. And, you know, everything I read in the newspaper is about how Huawei is going to put 5G networks into my country and um, how TikTok might be used to spy on us or something, right? Yeah. Like these are, these are things that I think people, I don't know, I'm not a psychoanalyst, but I feel like there's something subconscious going on with the material, the material basis for a lot of these stereotypes. So to get back to your question though, I, I think you're right. Like, if it is the case that 
China has a different attitude towards science and technology than the United States, which I don't, which I don't think is you can deny. That's not something we should close our eyes to, but it's more like we should just avoid explaining it through racial or cultural um, explanations. Just think about, well, how did it come to be this way? Um, and the science explanation is always so interesting because, again, if if you read Chinese history, you know, the 19th century into the 20th century, what was the stereotype about China? They're really bad at science. They're really right. bad at technology, right? Uh, this is the Needham question, right, which you talked about in a previous episode. So, like, how did it become? It can't be a cultural explanation why Chinese people are so good at math and science because... They weren't, not so very long ago. <laughs> exactly. The stereotype two lifetimes ago was that they're horrible at math and science. So this isn't cultural or natural. This is a product of history, probably state programs, you know, precisely because May 4th intellectuals were like, we're so bad at math and science. Precisely because of that, they institute all these programs to support math and science in a way that the United States used to support, but very obviously doesn't do very much in my, <laughs> as much anymore, right? So Andy, thank you for absolving me of of, of that. But, um, you know, just just as we can talk about you know China's scientific prowess or technological prowess without uh, you know invoking stereotypes, we can also talk about say the theory of a zoonotic origin without invoking you know this this idea of wet markets or at least using wet markets in a way that doesn't exoticize or orientalize them. Though, um, and you can talk about the problem of like trade in rare animals uh, alongside things like the expansion of human zones of habitation. Uh, into you know previously wild areas as being you know deeply freaking problematic and increasing the risk of of zoonotic transmission you know animal borne diseases making the jump to humans right so I mean it's I think it's it, one of the things I really liked about your essay was that it just sort of it it showed that 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 is possible I mean you modeled that kind of ability to to do that without you know orientalizing and just being yeah I mean careful. just like a footnote to that one thing I found out writing the first essay about the wet market is if you look at the pangolin trade, yeah, you could say that it's a traditional thing that people eat, but also like the trade in pangolins spiked since the eighties coinciding with all this new wealth in East Asia and China and, you know, mining Southeast Asia, black markets for pangolin. So again, pangolin consumption could be seen as a sign of traditional, traditional barbarity, but it's also just a sign of increasing wealth of China, which again is not a sign of China's, pre-modern, pre-capitalist um, character is a sign of how hyper-capitalist and hyper-consumerist China is these days. Yeah, I mean, which takes me back. I mean, that's really, you've come back to it uh, several times now in the course of our conversation here, but really the nub of your argument is about, you know, China and its relationship with global capitalism, right? I, I think that's that's fascinating. You said something that I think was really pithy and very intriguing in your piece. I'll read it to you. It says, what we think of as culture is often just a reflection of a particular place's relationship or relation to global capitalism. Now, I mean, there are some people who are going to say, ah, I smell an academic Marxist here. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, you know, superstructure is just a, <laughs> right. Uh, but you know, expand on that a bit. What do you, what do you, yeah. what do you mean? And, and maybe specifically in, in the case of, of, of China, I mean, maybe in the case of China, it's blindingly obvious how, you know, the Chinese condition relates to global capitalism, but, mm-hmm. um, for the purposes of this essay specifically, how do you how do you think that that our understanding of China in global capitalism helps us understand the prevalence, the ascent, and the eclipse of these different theories about COVID origins? That seems right. like a bit of a stretch. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'd have to plead guilty. I, I guess I smell really badly. Uh, <laughs> Redolence <okay>, so, <laughs> of academic Marxism. I mean, but yeah, this is basically the basis of my argument, um, which hopefully I. I 
I, people can find persuasive with or without all the footnotes and all the academic jargon. But um, so let me first say, like, we, we tend to use culture in two different ways. And I'm not against all forms of using the word culture. We tend to use culture as like the opposite of the economy. And I, I totally get like ideas are not the same thing as like making and make, selling goods. But we also tend to use culture as a way to distinguish Chinese versus Japanese versus American culture. And, and that is what I am kind of taking aim at. Um, so there's a tradition, a very useful tradition that's not just for academics, also, you know, like activists and writers in general, taking this argument from, from Marx about what he called fetishism. Um, and the basic premise is capitalism is super complex, it's chaotic. We don't understand all the dynamics that go into like why something costs as much money as it does. So instead of, so what we tend to do is we ascribe the social characteristics of things to their natural quality. So if I buy a $10 cup of coffee, why does it cost $10? It probably has to do with like labor and production costs and supply chains. But really, I don't think about that. I say this, cof- this coffee costs $10 because it's really good coffee, right? Or it's overpriced because this is really a $4 coffee. Like, what does that actually mean, right? We're kind of conflating two levels of analysis. Like one mm-hmm. is this abstract social economic world and the other is like the actual physical natural characteristics. And there's a, there's, tra- there's a tradition of people thinking about race that I think persuasively have said, like race is kind of the same thing. Um, we have this world in the 19th century um, when racial science really hardens, um, where you have different groups that fit into different uh, positions within the global economy. And th- that's a product of history. Like ob- the most obvious exam- example is like African slavery and the descendants of Africans who are the labor force of the United States and the United States South. Well, that is a product of history. But race science says it's not about history, it's about their natural qualities, like brain size, bodies, all that stuff. And then by the 20th century, and that's also, by the way, like all throughout the Chinese exclusion debates, right? It's about people with yellow skin have different muscles and organs than people with white skin and so on. So that that is, there's a basis for that, right? And then by the 20th century, racial science comes and goes, but then it gets replaced by kind of cultural explanations, like a culture of poverty or a culture of hard work, model minorities and so on. So a lot of times cultural explanations, I think, not always, right, but a lot of times what they're trying to do is make sense of a very, again, a, a chaotic global system where some people are very rich, some people are very poor, you know, people's fates and fortunes are always kind of on the up and down in ways we don't understand. And the best way we tend to comprehend, the, the way we tend to comprehend it is usually through national analysis that's mm-hmm. this idea of a national form or Colleen Lai is kind of also saying racial analysis racial form so race and nation are, are often used as kind of containers to domesticate all these contradictions that we have that we that we don't that we can't explain right with the global economy and so what Asiatic so what orientalism was trying to explain was well why was why is Asia so poor it's because of their culture right it's traditional it's backwards that's right. That's very plausible in the 19th century. In the 20th century, what is Asiaticism trying to explain? How the, I don't know if you can curse, how the F did Japan and then Taiwan and Korea and now China, how did they get so rich so quickly? It has to do something with, you know, samurai culture or Confucianism or, (laughs) right, lack of freedom and despotism and lack of democracy and so on. Um, And, you know, this isn't, again, to say that none of this stuff is true or has any you know kernel of truth to it right but a lot of ways again we're taking natural explanations or explanations that are outside of history as a substitute for history yeah right as a substitute for like what happened in the 60s and 70s and 80s that led up to all this that was very well done very well said 
So I got one <laughs> more question for you before I want to ask you also a little bit about your book about um, uh, yeah. T-War. So, but um, do you, I know that you wrote this in late 21, I, I suppose, and, and it was published in early 22, but in April of 22. At, at the time you wrote it, I think probably the world still saw China's response to COVID-19 largely, well, I mean, a sort of grudgingly admi- admiring way, you know, like they right. really had kept level. I mean, there were a lot of people who were skeptical about the total numbers, but clearly, you know, they weren't, you know, edging up on a million deaths the way we were then. But now I think that that's changed quite a bit. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people talking, you know, both within and outside of China about the failures of zero COVID and, and you know, the folly of it. Do you find that the Orientalist and Asiaticist narratives in the West's reaction, do they map onto the responses to this, to zero COVID? Are you saying, oh, in like the recent... recent yeah, weeks? recently. Um, I think, well, one thing I would say, I'll have to speculate on that in a second, but the other point I, I guess I would say is like in the essay itself, I was saying one way to kind of undermine or cut through Asiaticism as a cons- the loudly conspiracy, if it, at, to the extent it is a conspiracy theory, is the kind of show China really isn't that omnipotent. They're not really the puppet master behind the global economy. They face a lot of the same problems that people in the U.S. and Western Europe do. Um, they are also freaking out about their economy. They're also like you know uh, exporting all this capital that they have, and they don't know how to invest it in, so on and so forth. And and zero COVID and all the recent hand wringing about zero COVID in China is like, yes, you know, is zero COVID a rational policy? But also, how can we balance zero COVID against the prospects of economic shrinking or economic whatever stagnation in China, like they're right. not going to reach their GDP goals or so on. Um, so in a lot of ways, I think it's playing out in a way that's very predictable or not that not surprising if you actually follow China closely, which is like, yeah, there is a lot of problems with their policies. There are a lot of questions that um, need to be answered that might not be that visible if you're just kind of following it from very far away. In terms of the, I don't, I don't know, you'll, you'll, I guess I'm kind of out of the loop in terms of what does the world think about the COVID policies? I mm-hmm. think the New York Times basically is reporting like, uh, or like the mainstream U.S. reporting, I think, is sort of suggesting like the average Chinese person is, you know, gasping for freedom underneath the burden of these zero COVID policies. And it's, it's almost, I guess, I guess you could say it's orientalist, this idea that this despotic state that is undemocratically suppressing the freedoms of, of, the, of the Chinese citizen who deep down longs for the same freedoms that we do, right? I don't know. Yeah. So I don't know if that cuts against the Asiaticist explanation, but I also think, you know, there hasn't been any new polling in terms of these origins theories. And then we're kind of getting to this point where people have stopped caring about the origins theories. Yeah. Um, I still suspect most people believe in lab leak though. I think, I think, I think for a variety of reasons that also probably have to do with like the Western liberal attempt to sort of deal with these as well kind of leads to a lot of suspicion about like, Hey, what's, what's being covered up? What's what, why are, why are people so, um, why, why is, uh, why are like mainstream us newspapers so dismissive of the lab leak? It must be because it's true or something. Your bellwether for the sort of great unwashed masses was John Stewart. For me, I mean, among the intelligentsia, my bellwether was when Zainab Tufetsky started going in on that. I mean, is well, so what does she think right now? No, yeah, she's, she's all, 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 all about lab leak. Really? Yeah, it's wow. really de- depressing. That's shocking. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, no, it really is. You'd think that somebody, you know, it's a little sensitivity to <laughs> Asiatic yeah. representation. Yeah, I thought she was good. Well, sorry. She so, is very good. Yeah, she is. So otherwise, I, did, otherwise, I didn't realize she was. Good. Yeah. Yeah. It's heartbreaking, kind of. Anyway, um, Andy, tell us about, about 
T-War, uh, which I have not had a chance to read yet, but I'm, uh, it's on my list. I'm, I'm definitely going to get to it, especially having now, you know, read some of your other stuff. It, it, it's it's great. It's about China and India and global capitalism, yeah? Yeah. What, what times does it span? So it starts with that, you know, most famous topics in Chinese history, the Opium War, mm-hmm. um, but mm-hmm. it's kind of looking at the other side, like very famously, Opium is the product of a trade triangle, British goods to India, Indian opium, Indian opium to China, Chinese tea back to Britain. And uh, the flip side to the opium story is also this creation or like this kind of emergence of the Chinese tea trade in, you know, with the Canton trade in the 18th century, mm-hmm. leading to the opium war as like the commodity that the rest of the world, Western Europe, can't get enough of. So um, within the academy, there's been this kind of resurgence of interest in the history of capitalism, dealing with the OA cri- and reacting to the OA crisis. And there have been books about cotton. There's famously very good books about sugar and the way to think about one way to think about it is, well, if you think about what was the Asian commodity that was in such great demand that helped make the global economy go around in the 19th, 20th century, I think not entirely, but for a large chunk of it, it was tea, right? And then we get into like things like silk and textiles and so on. Um, but not only that, um, you know, if you go to the grocery store today, you don't just see Chinese tea, you see Japanese tea, but you see a lot of Indian tea. But yeah, Indian yeah. tea, right, is not is not a new or not, it's not an old "Quote unquote traditional institution." It was created by the British, right, uh, under the British Empire as a colonial experimentation in this territory called Assam, mm-hmm. which is on the North border, right, of, of right, yeah, of, of Burma or Myanmar, Yunnan, and so I, I just, I was just kind of originally interested in that story. Like these British colonial administrators literally bring what they assume are Chinese tea makers, but are just like average workers from Jiangxi living in Guangdong, they bring them over to Assam and like, tell us how to make tea. And eventually they figure it out kind of, and their um, tea industry takes off. And then what eventually happens is by the turn of the 20th century, the Indian industry under the auspices of British capitalism, British colonial capitalism surpasses the Chinese industry, which is this huge shocking thing because tea is always this Chinese commodity. And so a lot of these same questions about why does China fail? Why are they so bad at technology? What is so inherently superior about Western civilization? They actually come up. And as I have kind of you know suggested with regards to the lab leak essay, my argument is sort of like, well, this economic competition, which is dynamic and changing, and like China's on top, and India's on top, and China's back on top, that gives rise to cultural explanations that we find all throughout the 20th century, right? About the, the limits of Oriental civilization the you know all the bounties that occidental civilization can give us right but what appears as a very nice and tidy just so cultural explanation for why one industry succeeds and why what doesn't why one fails quote unquote fails is a result of all these kind of complex economic interactions um and so uh, i don't obviously i'm not going to make big civilizational statements but it's kind of the same question as like the great divergence and the needham question all that the sort of uh, big questions that used to occupy a lot of uh, what, used to, what used to be called Orientalist scholarship, right? And just kind of saying like underlying a lot of this, if you look at the case study of tea, is stuff that wasn't predetermined and natural. It was actually like a very contingent historical process that also has a lot to do. The, the other part of the story is kind of making a claim that China, which has often been seen as you know the opposite of capitalism, pre-capitalists or only having the sprouts of capitalism, was actually pretty much embedded within the global capitalist system by the 19th century. Hmm. Yeah, no, that sounds like the kind of book that I would absolutely love. I love, uh, you know, the kind of great divergence, you know, the Pomerantz and, and all that stuff. 
I also uh, love those sort of single commodity uh, explorations to, to sort of tell a gigantic macroeconomic story. You know, cod uh, was this right, Mark yeah. Zerlansky. Salt. That, exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So, uh, he's, he's a good one. I, I read a coffee book recently, which was also. Yeah, coffee is a, yeah. I actually, I'm a coffee drinker, not a tea drinker. So I'm a tea I drinker now. I've switched. You are? You switched? Yeah. Was the caffeine too much for you? or? Yeah, I mean, it's a different buzz. I mean, it's like less spiky. I feel like I get a longer uh-huh. ride and it's like more, I'm more in charge of it. It's, I like yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I always told myself I was more objective about tea because I don't actually drink. I mean, I drink it like I start with coffee, then I might have a tea in the afternoon. Yeah, I still I still have to have a coffee at some point in the middle of the afternoon. Like okay. right now, I think my next my next it's three o'clock right now. Right. I'm thinking maybe coffee because I'm going to edit this podcast right away afterward. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, man, that was fantastic. I, I look forward to reading the book and I, I look forward to having you back on the show again because obviously we have tons to talk about. Yeah. Thanks for the invitation. It's great. Yeah, so stick around. We're going to move on to recommendations. But first, a quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. And if you like the work that we do with Seneca or with any of the other many, many shows in the Seneca network, uh, the best thing you can do to support the work we do is is uh, subscribe to our wonderful China Access newsletter. Your subscription makes it possible for us to do these things. So we're rolling out a really, speaking of, of commodities and, and commerce, uh, the Silk and Coffee podcast, which will be, uh, it's it's the first podcast that we'll be doing in Spanish. There will be an occasional English language episode and we'll run one of those uh, on Seneca uh, so you can get a taste of it. It's it's a wonderful podcast and it's all about China in Latin America. And speaking of China in Latin America, the wonderful China in Africa podcast has now branched out. Uh, one of their two weekly shows is now the China Global South podcast, which is going beyond just Africa to talk about Latin America, about Southeast Asia, about South Asia, and, of course, the Middle East and North Africa. So it will be very cool. Um, stay tuned. More good shows coming your way. All right. Recommendations. Andy, what you got for us? Yeah, so I thought of two uh, when you asked recommendations. The first is more fun. The second, more serious. The first is a, a kind of a memoir book written by the writer Hua Xu, who writes for The New Yorker. Yeah, yeah sure. I'd... Right, yeah. Um, he has a memoir coming out, uh, kind of growing up, about growing up in the Bay as Taiwanese-American kind of childhood into college. Um, it's I, I was able to really read a review copy. It's coming out in a few months, so but you can pre-order it now. And it's basically, I would summarize it as like the life of an Asian-American hipster in the 90s. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He's, very, sure. He's really into music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a long section on Pearl Jam versus Nirvana. Um, and he, I think he's very Gen X. I'm more millennial Gen X, but I could still kind of relate to his experience about the 90s pop culture mm-hmm. a lot. So it's a fun read and... Um, it's it's serious at times as well, but it's it's well it's really well written. Yeah, I think he's like right between us in age. So yeah, so yeah, I'm, exactly. I'm squarely Gen X, but uh. yeah, yeah. I grew up in Seattle, so I didn't understand. I I was more Pearl Gen than Nirvana to my great shame. Um, growing up, I I later realized I made the wrong choice. But, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, you know, they're both great. You can like them both for different. <laughs> uh, the second recommendation is more serious. I was just kind of thinking. There's a lot of. I don't know if other people agree with feel this way as well. There's a lot of despair right now about what's going on. My, in terms of like what we can actually do to like address stuff in the U S my recommendation is um, I made a donation or I've been making donations to um, local abortion funds to mm-hmm. kind of concretely address some of the limits to restrictions to access, especially in States with anti-abortion laws. So I made a donation to a fund run by a friend of a friend called abortion care for Tennessee abortioncaretn.org, but obviously there are many funds that people can 
um, could could find that they're comfortable with. But just in general, I feel like uh, of all the like crazy things in the news today, this is the one one of the few ways that are very concrete and direct, and you can feel like you actually um, are contributing to something rather than you know just a social media post or something. So that's another recommendation. Thanks. That's a great one. Yeah. So uh, I think we all know which states are are really sort of in peril right now. So uh, I think it's a really good idea to focus on on abortion funds that are in those states rather than just locally. I mean, I'm so far, I mean, touch wood, North Carolina seems to be okay, but we shall see. Yeah. And that was like a weird window where these laws are about to kick in, Yeah, but maybe not yet. So I think it's a good time or it's an important time right now. So my recommendation for the week is the show Borgen, which I, I know I'm totally late to this party because it, it's been like everyone's been watching it forever. Andy, have you seen Borgen? What, what, what medium is this? Or no, what? no. It's it's a Danish uh, West Wing kind of show, except it's more serious than West Wing. It's it's not. It doesn't have that, you know, kind of smarmy um, and ultra glib kind of. Uh, well, there's there's a lot of really fun dialogue. I mean, obviously, I don't hear it in the in the original Danish. I, reading the subtitles, but just from the subs, it just looks um, extremely witty. But it's great. It's a political uh, sort of infighting, and just it's 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 marvelous. Uh, I think there are four seasons of it. I've just started the first season. I'm only like four or five episodes in, but already absolutely hooked. Uh, so thank you to all the many people who have recommended this show for me because uh, uh, it's summer. You know, I can kick back a little more and uh, enjoy some TV. So it's on Netflix. Netflix. Check it out. It's Netflix. called Borgen. Andy, man, that was great. I really enjoyed talking to you, and uh, I look forward to, to meeting in person sometime. Yeah, thanks a lot. This is great. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChinaNews. Uh, you know, while you're at it, check out our TikTok channel. We have a wonderful new TikTok channel uh, run by this very talented woman named Susan St. Dennis, and uh, it's at China Vibe. Look up China Vibe. That's, that's the sub-China TikTok channel. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Bye.